Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Dr. Elena Rios, President and CEO of the National Hispanic Medical Association. Dr. Rios talks about the devastating impact the pandemic has had on the Latino populations in this country with more than double the death toll and great economic hardship as well, impacting health and mental health in that community. She talks about the powerful potential in the American Recovery Act and the American Families Act under President Biden to address some of the driving forces behind health inequity. Lori Robertson also checks in. Managing editor of factcheck.org looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Elena Rios here on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Dr. Elena Rios, president and CEO of the National Hispanic Medical Association, representing 50,000 Hispanic physicians in the United States. She is also president of the National Hispanic Health Foundation, seeking to improve the health of Hispanic populations in this country. Dr. Rios is an internist. She served as advisor for regional and minority women's health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and she's a trustee of the New York Academy of Medicine. Dr. Rios, we welcome you to Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you, honored to be here. That's great. And Dr. Rios, the Hispanic community has been hit especially hard by the pandemic, amplifying the depth of health inequity, long experienced by people of color in this country. I wonder if you could help our listeners understand the true impact that COVID-19 has had on the Hispanic community and put it into perspective for us. Well, I think overall, uh, you know, not every state collects data on Hispanics. That's the first problem. But overall, uh, Hispanics and, and other vulnerable communities have really had, uh, you know, twice as many uh, deaths than the white population. And a, a lot of that is because of the underlying conditions that Hispanics who are uh, mostly uh, lower income, working class uh people uh, known as essential workers uh, in our uh, communities now have lots of underlying conditions like diabetes and obesity and heart disease and cancers and, and uh, also are, are living in multi-generational housing uh, with uh, sm in small business, working in small businesses or in the service industry or in the, you know, in the agriculture business or meat packing plants, et cetera, where They've lost jobs and uh, are, uh, are really feeling the impact, the economic impact of COVID-19, as well as the, the physical and emotional impact of this horrible pandemic. Well, Dr. Rios, I think one uh, piece of good news is that there seems to be adequate supply of vaccine out there now in most communities but we still see vaccine hesitancy in many communities and we see some of it in the Latino community as well. I know uh, the National Hispanic Medical Association of which you've been such a leader has launched the at vaccinate for all campaign 
to address this issue. Tell us about this effort and what are the vaccine resistance challenges, uh, the key areas that you're seeking to address, educate, or, or help overcome? Yeah, well, I think uh, some of the important issues with vaccination is education and outreach. And uh, many people are afraid of government programs, just don't trust government programs. And we do know that the NIH and has worked with the pharma companies to, to uh, produce this vaccinations that are very safe, very effective. But uh, many people just don't understand uh, that yet. And I think the other problem is that we do have people that are uh, again, don't have the money to pay for vaccines and don't know that it's free. So, and, and that uh, for people that are undocumented, maybe, or uh, have undocumented people in their family, may be afraid of, of uh, the privacy issues mm -hmm. and not have, you know, making sure that, that people know that the vaccine providers are not going to give away information to anybody like the INS or, or any other authorities and that it's, it really is a, a, a private issue. So the National Hispanic Medical Association is proud to be able to uh, have a, a national campaign funded by CDC, and we call it Vaccinate for All because we think everyone in the family should understand how important vaccinations are for everyone. Right now, we can get vaccinations to those who are 12-year-olds and, and older. So I can tell you that the most important part of our, our campaign is that we are encouraging health professionals and patients alike uh, to sign up and be a champion for Vaccinate for All, which means that if they come to our website, which is www.nhmamd.org and go to the Vaccinate for All page, they can sign up and uh, become a champion where they, they can send information to their families and to their loved ones, uh, simple information in English and Spanish about how to get vaccinated and the importance of these key facts about vaccinations, that they're safe, effective, and important to, to be able to have a vaccination uh, in one or two doses that will uh, be very effective in decreasing the impact of the disease of COVID-19 and that it's much better to get a vaccination than to end up in a hospital on a ventilator. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's our main message. Yeah. Well, that, that is such a great program. And uh, you, know, you said the word earlier that a key to having all this happening is developing trust. And uh, you know, probably hasn't been a lot of trust happening with the Department of Homeland Security, but they recently stated that ICE and the Border Patrol will not conduct enforcement operations at or near vaccination sites. That must be so critical uh, to the work that the National Hispanic Medical Association is undertaking. Uh, and I'm wondering, is this fact getting out to the community? Uh, and, uh, and also just uh, talk to us about the negative impact of immigration policy has had on Hispanic health. Well, I, I, I think we all need to tell more people of the importance of this message uh, about uh, those who are getting the vaccine will not be fearful of having any kind of government uh, uh, ICE or, or INS be part of that, uh, the vaccination sites. 
Uh, so yes, it is very important that more people know about it. I think the, the, the most important problem for undocumented is that there are uh, very few uh, access to healthcare. Uh, one is through community health centers. Federal community health centers are supported to take care of anyone that walks in their doors. Uh, and the other is emergency rooms. But, uh, and I should say doctors who have, who are able to provide charity care. And we do see a lot of Hispanic doctors, uh, mm -hmm. especially in our uh, poorer communities, taking care of, of patients when they, you know, when they can. I do think that it's important to know that some places like California and New Jersey have changed state laws to allow funding from Medicaid of the, from the state portion to be able to take care of people that are not documented. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's the major problem is the lack of access uh, to resources uh, because, you know, and many can get some insurance from employers, uh, you know, while they, uh, uh, while, while employers are still able to provide uh, insurance. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. Rios, I want to uh, thank you for the shout out to community health centers, obviously, uh, where uh, we do most of our work. Uh, but also, you know, Mark, I, uh, it never even occurs to me these days that people would think there's a cost for the vaccine right, because right. there has been no cost associated. But you're, you're so right, uh, Dr. Rios, that that may be something I take for granted is absolutely known uh, among our uh, communities and may not be. So thank you for that reminder. Uh, and I, I wanted to ask you uh, also um, about uh, Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, who I know was a keynote speaker at the recent annual meeting of your organization. Of course, she's the Biden administration's director of equity uh, through the pandemic uh, and beyond. Share some of her insights on, on how the president's policies uh, might have the potential to address some of these really entrenched health equity challenges that we've lived with for way too long and desperately need to do something about. Yeah, Dr. Uh, Nunez-Smith was great. And I think that she her big message was how important it was to be more inclusive and to listen to people in our communities that have suffered so long with health inequities because of their poverty levels, uh, lack of education, limited English, uh, just you know, maternal mortality, there's, it can go on and on and on. And I mentioned earlier, obesity and diabetes and heart disease. Uh, I, I would just say it's toxic stress in, uh, mm -hmm. in poor communities that need to be addressed. And what Dr. Nunez Smith did, she did a great job in discussing some of the key points are, that we now know as the American Rescue Plan mm -hmm. of President Biden in the White House. It's been, um, he actually addressed this last week with uh, uh, in the joint uh, congressional session. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this will be taken care of just basic necessities like more funding for food programs in our communities, uh, the schools having money to revamp schools so they can open, uh, college student loans, uh, rent for, for people and other housing programs. Uh, people are really desperate right now because they've lost so many jobs. Mm and our un um, more unemployment until uh, the fall. And I think the one of the major issues that uh, I think we're really proud to see is that this administration is taking a, a, a real look at poverty yeah. 
and decreasing child poverty in half by the tax credits that they put into the American Rescue Plan. So the tax codes would be changed so that families would get tax credits for not only being married or having a family, but for each child. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's gonna go a long way to help, uh, again, working families have a little bit more hope uh, with some money to pay their bills and buy food. We're speaking today with Dr. Elena Rios, uh, President and CEO of the National Hispanic Medical Association and President of the National Hispanic Health Foundation, seeking to improve the health of the Latino population in this country. Well, you know, I really want to pull the thread on, on uh, your shout out uh, to the Biden administration about the American Families Act and the American Rescue Plan. I'm just wondering, as you think about policy going forward, no plan is perfect, though this one does a really good job. You really talked about the, the guarantee for uh, really trying to cut child poverty in half throughout the, throughout the land, which is, which is so important to do. But what other additional reforms uh, are you and the uh, National Hispanic Medical Association advocating for, things that uh, people at state should keep their eye on, or, as well as the national level? Well, I think, again, with the stress that has been uh, developing even you know, at a higher level than ever because of the pandemic, I think we have to look at the importance of anxiety and mental health and all of the issues happening within families, uh, domestic violence, mm -hmm. you know, opioid abuse mm -hmm. was always there, but it's just exacerbated. Uh, the other issue is really the healthcare workers themselves we really need more diversity within the medical profession, doctors, nurses, dentists, but we, more importantly, we need more community people to step up and be part, part of the messenger system. And the, you know, we've, we've seen the Biden administration increase community health workers for uh, accessing health insurance through the affordable care plan. I think we need more community health workers working within public health to be the, the uh, trusted messengers for you know, getting people to understand where they can go get a vaccine, helping them find appointments, I, the navigators, uh, if you will, within public health. And I also think that we're gonna see a lot more importance of public health and mm -hmm. building back the infrastructure of public health that was there in the 1950s when we had polio and uh, polio vaccines, you know, um, in the 1960s, and this, this, uh, you know, we have so many problems in our communities. I mean, homelessness is another one that that really is a public health issue when we think about getting prepared for the next pandemic. So I, these are just some of the things I could think of mm -hmm. that are really uh, across the board needed at the at the state level and the national level. Yeah. Well, Dr. Rios, every one of those uh, that you mentioned is very important, but I wonder if we could um, just zero in for a moment more on your specific thoughts about how we reach into uh, the uh, Hispanic and Latino communities and uh, excite people, engage them in thinking about careers in the health professions um, and bring them in. And you've done a spectacular job uh, with physicians uh, within uh, your organization, within the uh, the uh, uh, world of uh, physicians, but I'm wondering, you spoke about nurses and community health workers, the dentists, the therapists, um, the people who are gonna lead and run these operations. What are your thoughts about how we do that so that 
the individual who comes into any healthcare organization feels like, wow, this is, this is a place that reflects me as well as everybody else in the community. Well, it starts young. I think we need more uh, uh, awareness among young people, you know, in the K through 12 in our grammar schools and high schools about the important role uh, for jobs. Uh, the healthcare industry is the number one industry with jobs in this country. Right. And anywhere you go, you can get a job in the healthcare industry. You can move, you know, and find a hospital, a nursing home, a clinic. Uh, and I think that there are jobs that that don't take that much time. <laughs> uh, not everybody can go to medical school and has that uh, stamina to stay there, uh, you know, for 10 years and go to school. But I do think uh, it has to start young. And the other thing is we really do need more role models. You know, the, Hispan the National Hispanic Medical Association is made up of mainly the Hispanic doctors that are alumni of the United States medical schools. But unfortunately only 5% of all the doctors in the country are Hispanic. So there's very few of us. And what we need is more doctors in our medical school alumni to go out and talk to community, uh, you know, PTAs, parents of grammar school kids, talk to the grammar school kids about what it takes to, you know, if you're very interested in science and math and critical thinking, there's no reason why you can't be supported to continue along that path. Right. Unfortunately, our, our, we don't have the, uh, the good counselors in the public school system to understand that they can make or break a student's a vision of themselves going to be a, a, in healthcare if they don't support them in, in continuing to be good in math and science. And then in college, I think the same thing. We, we run a program called the College Health Scholars Program. And we've seen over 2,500 Hispanic students from Texas, California, the East Coast, just different places around the country. We're matching them with mentors who are Hispanic students that are in medical school that are telling them, look, we made it, you can make it too. And I think, I think that's what's real important that we have mentoring because so many of our families do not have fathers or mothers that are health right. professionals. Mm -hmm. um, although they may go to a dentist or go to a doctor and see them, they don't, they, you know, they don't necessarily think that they can uh, get to that point. Well, that's just a wonderful roadmap for the future of individuals, but also for the future of the healthcare system uh, by providing that mentoring. I think it's fair to say that you are a futurist uh, for healthcare and the National Hispanic Medical Association, uh, as we talked about a little earlier, is involved in the All of Us Precision Medicine Initiative. As a federally qualified health center, we were one of the uh, vanguard of the, uh, uh, when Dr. Collins ran it, uh, started this program up. It's so important to have a program that uh, focuses on research that uh, looks like all of the country, not just a limited part of the country. I'm wondering if you could share with us your vision for this, uh, this wonderful effort by NIH and how it may lead to improved healthcare and healthcare outcomes in the Latino community. Yeah, the All of Us program was designed to follow a million people in, the, in America that live here uh, over 18 who can be followed for 10 years so that our researchers can, can learn more about how people live and, and how they face uh, different diseases as they, as they uh, age over 10 years. 
And I think it's so important that we have more Latinos sign up for the program. Uh, and there is a website that where you can sign up, but I think it's important that we have uh, participants who, who can provide knowledge for the next generation uh, about our communities. And we'll only learn about how Latinos face diabetes or heart disease mm -hmm. and the struggles they go through, but also the important, uh, you know, tips and 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 uh, how they how they respond to medications and therapy and exercise. And I think it's just so important that we get involved so that we can also uh, learn from each other and pass on the information to the next generation. Well, that's great, and I think I, we can say that they're still accepting people into that program. Yes, I think they're still recruiting, yes. so not too late for people. Yes. Uh, to participate and get their families involved as well. We've been speaking today with Dr. Elena Rios. She's the president and CEO of the National Hispanic Medical Association and president of the National Hispanic Health Foundation. Learn more about her work by going to nhmad.org or follow her on Twitter at Elena Rios MD. Dr. Rios, we wanna thank you so much for your leadership, for all of your contributions to health equity and for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you, it was a pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Stanford Medicine says it, quote, strongly supports the use of face masks to control the spread of COVID-19. Yet viral stories falsely claim a Stanford study showed that face masks are unsafe and ineffective against the disease. The paper is actually a hypothesis, not a study, from someone with no current affiliation with Stanford. And it has since been retracted by the journal that originally published it. One claim shared on Facebook said this supposed Stanford study said face masks, quote, can cause health deterioration and premature death. The paper was the author's hypothesis, published in a journal called Medical Hypotheses. While the paper says the author is affiliated with Stanford, a spokesperson for the university told us that's incorrect. The author had a one-year term as a visiting scholar that ended in 2016. We reached out to the author but didn't get a response. The paper said that the virus itself, SARS-CoV-2, SARS was small enough to pass through any face mask. But J. Alex Huffman, an aerosol scientist at the University of Denver, told us that betrayed a fundamental lack of understanding of respiratory aerosols. There's a wide range of sizes of particles people emit when breathing, speaking, or coughing, from tens of nanometers to hundreds of microns. Most of them, them Huffman said, are removed by good masks. Lab studies have shown masks, especially multi-layered masks that fit well, can partially block exhaled respiratory droplets, which are thought to be the primary way the virus spreads. The paper went on to claim that masks can cause insufficient oxygen or too much carbon dioxide in the blood. Experts have repeatedly rebuffed such claims. The American Lung Association notes, quote, we wear masks all day long in the hospital. The masks are designed to be breathed through and there is no evidence that low oxygen levels occur. The editor-in-chief of Medical Hypotheses has since retracted the paper. The journal said the paper was misleading and apologized to its readers. 
And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Over the past few decades, kids have been getting less and less physical activity throughout the school day. And as budgets have been tightened and achievement requirements have increased, phys ed has become less prevalent in many schools. The University of Michigan researchers wanted to find a creative and effective solution that would increase kids' movement and increasing sedentary lifestyles without disrupting the school day. We looked at the scientific literature in terms of prolonged sitting, and they have demonstrated that if you just just two minutes of activity, a small burst, get up, do some movements, sit back down, activity in that small of a dose can have dramatic improvements on health, on cognition, on learning. So we decided to develop an intervention, a program that would allow children to get these small bursts of activity throughout the day. Dr. Rebecca Hassan is principal investigator for IMPACT, interruption of prolonged sitting with activity. She wanted to find out of just two to three minute short bursts of physical activity five times a day would impact the kid's cumulative movement. The research showed that kids of all shapes and body types found the program easy to participate in. We typically see in PE or recess lower participation in girls compared to boys, but in classroom activity breaks, you actually see similar rates of participation, if not higher rates of participation in girls compared to boys. We also saw that for uh, children who are carrying a few extra pounds, that those children also were exercising at a high intensity. Even children with asthma, they were even able to do the activity breaks at a higher extent than the children without asthma. Dr. Hassan, a kinesiologist, said they wanted to design the intervention that would be easy for teachers to adopt and manage. So they created videos designed to get kids moving quickly, then allow them to quickly ease back into their learning mode. We created a compendium of 200 activity breaks that are just three minutes long, Um, So the teachers had a variety of different types of activities, whether it was jumping jacks, leapfrogs, something that will get their heart rate in the target heart zone. We got a lot of positive responses, particularly for the videos from the teachers, because it was really easy to implement. Kids burned on average about 150 more calories per day, and at the end of the week had accrued a significant amount of physical activity. The kids, when they left the laboratory, when they went home, they still continued to be physically active. We had these little accelerometers. They measure movement at the hip, and so it tells us how many calories were the kids burning away from the laboratory and how much physical activity were they getting. A low-cost, easily adoptable fitness intervention for kids, allowing short bursts of physical activity throughout the school day enhancing fitness, empowering kids to move more, positively impacting the learning experience. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health.
Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.